You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Right. Well, we are in our fourth episode here of our sermon series, Long Story Short. It's good to see you all today. Uh, Welcome to Hope Fellowship Church. If you're here for the first time, my name is Pastor Jordan. Pastor Jeff spoke earlier. Chad gave announcements about Hillfest and how you can get volunteering there. Um, And so you can check out that table in the back there. So much has been shared. Thank you, Val, for sharing your heart. That was encouraging. Like I said, so often I get up here um, and I often feel like my heart's already so full. There's, There's so many things I've learned, so many things I've sung about. And then I'm like, oh yeah, now I still have to preach. So, you know, kind of comes to that point in, the, in, the, ser- in the, the service. So, and thank you for being here. It's good to see you here today. It's a beautiful day. And um, I'm gonna be uh, looking at episode four here. Uh, we're looking at Israel. And we're gonna begin in a place in Genesis, really 25. You can turn with me there if you'd like. The series as we've been looking at this long story short. And today I promised, well I told Josh earlier in the week, this week I'm gonna get him out of Egypt, okay? But uh, we're not getting out of Egypt. We're just gonna be entering Egypt, okay, today. Next week they're getting out of Egypt, I promise, okay? Uh, But today we're gonna be looking at the formation of the nation of Israel. Uh, We looked at Abraham last week. Hopefully that was encouraging for you. Uh, Even a few of you were able to reach out to me and it was really encouraging to me to hear that some of those things that we looked at last week we're starting to, we unpacked, were helpful for you as you started to see some of the stories of the Bible in a new light, in a new way, maybe a way that you hadn't thought of before. Uh, not just standalone select stories, but things that are connected in and really foreshadow so much of what's to come. So that's really what, especially what we're gonna be doing today. We're gonna be looking at a variety of stories, some of which, again, those of you who've grown up in church, in Sunday school, you're like, oh, I know that story, I know that story, but how does it connect and why is the story there? And so we're gonna be looking at Jacob and Esau, the birthright, Jacob's deception, Jacob's ladder or the stairway, uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Uh, we're gonna be looking at Joseph's life in very brief, but mostly his death and as w- what he foretells is gonna be happening. And then Joseph, as he preserves the nation of Israel and the really family of Israel, becomes a nation in Egypt. And Moses, as he, as we're gonna conclude with Exodus 3, in Moses encountering God in the burning bush and we learn God's personal name. And so we've been tracing this family from Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, the the flood and then the formation of this nation as God zooms in really on one guy, Abraham. He zooms out from the whole story of creation and the story of humanity and he zooms in on Abraham. And then from Abraham on, we really follow and trace his lineage and his offspring and his descendants and how the promise uh, that God gives to Abraham to give him a land and a seed and a blessing and a nation and to bless the whole world through Abraham is gonna be passed down from person to person. And as we're anticipating in our hearts that this storyline, this person is gonna be someone who's gonna come one day, who's gonna crush the head of the snake. Who is gonna come and do that? For the snake caused so much trouble in the garden. Who's gonna finally bring this whole story of grand redemption again? Uh, who are, how are we gonna be bought out? How are we gonna be reconciled with God? How is this all gonna unfold? These are the questions that are constantly going through our heads and through our minds. And as we read the Old Testament, God continually unfolds and reveals more of his character and his plan for the world. 
And so I kind of want to look at some major themes, major ideas as we do, but we're going to be walking through it. And it's been, a, it's been in a challenging study for me, but something that I've found very helpful as it's been able to kind of un, uh, open up my eyes to see a greater picture here. So in Genesis 25, uh, why don't we just begin reading in verse 21. Genesis 25, verse 21, this is um, the birth of, of Jacob and Esau. Verse 21 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. We see a similar storyline with Abraham and Sarah now reflected here in Isaac and Rebekah. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And we get this amazing birth given description here. And the children struggled together within her. She had twins here. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Are they struggling? Maybe, maybe women, you can describe what that feels like. I don't really know. But this idea of almost, a, almost this physical but yet spiritual struggle going on within her. And she actually inquires of the Lord of this. Why is this happening? There's a fascinating thing that God then tells her why this is happening. This is very purposeful. It's very intentional. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, He gives her this oracle of truth as to the two children that are within her womb that will be er very influential in the timeline of history to the point where today in Jaffe we're still talking about them. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Well, who's gonna be stronger than the other? Well, the older will serve the younger. And this lays out for us a pattern that we'll trace throughout the entire scripture. But the older, the eldest, will serve the younger. I would agree. I'm the youngest in my family, so that's usually the way it goes, right? Uh, verse 24, when, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau, which means red in Hebrew. Verse 26, and afterward his brother came out and his hand was holding on to Esau's heel. And so his name was called Yaakov or Jacob. This idea means uh, supplanter or literally, almost literally heel grabber, okay? Good thing we don't name our children right off the bat, right? Or, or wait for a little bit of time till we see their personality and then name them. I, I think I would have changed the name for our daughters pretty quickly. But this idea, Jacob, this heel grabber, literally he's grabbing Esau's heel as he's coming out, right? And his name was called Jacob and Isaac was 60 years old when she, bore, uh, when, when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, verse 27, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. And verse 28, we get this picture of their family. A very, very wonderful family unit here. It says Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You get immediately these two divisions occur between the parents and between the children that will be descriptive and very important as we move on. But as we look at this, we read these stories and as we look on, we're gonna be looking at some more stories of Jacob and Esau on the birthright. And we see this right off the bat, this very explicit phrase by God given to Rebecca about the twins in her womb that the younger, or sorry, the older will serve the younger or the younger will be more powerful and stronger than the oldest. We see from the Bible, this is a very important theme that runs from the scripture, this theme of primogeniture in that culture, the eldest son 
even see it passed down into uh, this idea of kings and queens in England, the firstborn son, the eldest son uh, carried through with them this birthright by birth order. The eldest son received the largest portion of inheritance, the largest amount of authority. When the father passed away, the eldest son carried the responsibility of leading the family unit. And so the right of one's birth was very important in that culture. Today, not so much in our culture, uh, but but like I said, not even too far removed do we have in England and France this very important firstborn son that becomes the next king in line and all these kinds of things. Something that throughout history is well known and we're very well familiar with. The idea of a firstborn, the eldest, And then what God does with that throughout Scripture is a major motif that gives us an understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, in the New Testament, Colossians 1.15, it's speaking of Jesus as he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. And then it says, the firstborn of all creation. Now some would take that word and twist it to say that Jesus is created and he had no beginning. He's just a person who was born. But we know from this scripture and even the rest of Colossians that Jesus uh, was not created but he has always begun. He was there in the beginning. And he is the firstborn, meaning that he is the one who receives all authority and inheritance of God. It is poured out in Jesus that he has received that authority, that inheritance, that power. Uh, He is the one who has the power and authority of all of God the Father dispensed to Jesus, this concept. And so he is the one in which we uh, has the authority to do what he does, to rise from the dead and to forgive sins, just like the Father. And so this is what is being spoken of. But yet, in the New Testament and in the Old, we see this motif of the firstborn be something that we wouldn't always expect. Be something that's very unexpected. As we're, again, looking for this offspring, this, this birth order, the, the, we're always paying attention as G- Genesis constantly gives you genealogies. This person begot this person begot this person. Family lines and offsprings and descendants are vitally important in the scripture. Why? Well, in the, new te- in the be- very beginning, we, we're expected to be looking for a seed, an offspring, someone who would come and crush the head of the snake. Who is this one who is going to come? If we were meant as human beings to reflect the image of God and to work on his behalf in the, in the world and to reflect his glory by working and caring for Eden and then we have failed in that, he has promised that one would come to restore that relationship so one day humanity could be in right relationship with God. But who is this one who is going to come? So we're constantly paying attention to births, to children, and who they are and even specifically their order in which they are born. And so we're looking for Isaac, and Isaac is one that is such a fantastic story that we read last week. We ended with Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac, who was the chosen child of God, and we're saying this isn't supposed to work, this isn't how it's gonna work, and yet God then amazingly supplies this ram instead of sacrificing Isaac. Then Isaac marries Rebekah, grows up, and they have twins. And their twins are Jacob and Esau. And their offspring are extremely important. But what God does is very different than what we would expect. Or what humanity would expect. This is a major theme. That God works in unexpected ways. (laughs) You read the Bible a little bit. And it won't take you very long to start understanding that what we would expect to happen isn't what happens. 
God works in unexpected ways on almost every single page of the Bible. He's constantly kind of turning things upside down and doing it God's way, ways that we wouldn't expect, the way we wouldn't always do it, but it's the way God does it. In that TV series, The Chosen, as you've probably seen, they often say, get used to different. Have you heard that? Remember that phrase? Get used to different. And I think when you read God's word in the story of the Bible, we're to get used to different. God doesn't follow the typo, typical primogeniture, this firstborn inheritance thing. He's often taking the one you wouldn't expect. He's often taking the younger. In fact, that's what he does with Jacob. Jacob is the youngest. It is his name that is eventually changed to Israel, not Esau's name. It is the Abel chosen as the younger over Cain. It is the Isaac, the younger, chosen over an Ishmael. It's the Jacob chosen over Esau. It is Joseph selected to preserve the nation of Israel, the family of Israel, over his older brothers. It's Rachel over Leah. It's Judah, in fact, the fourthborn there, over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. It is that we sang earlier, he is the lion of Reuben. No, the lion of Judah. Judah is the line of the kingly line that's passed down through Jesus to where the lion of Judah has conquered the grave. It is the relationship even that we see in, in Tamar and in Judah's relationship with eventually Perez and Zerah that we get these people that pass down to Ruth and Boaz. And then it is the, the Gideons of the world. It is the David <laughs> the one they literally passed through all the sons, the tall, young, stra- the strapping young men, and none of them. It's the, the short guy who we left off the list because he's supposed to be taking care of the sheep. Where is, is that all of your sons? And they say, no, there's one, there's one more, David. He's in the fields watching the sheep, doing the chores. Oh, well, why don't you bring him in? Samuel anoints him king. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. This is how God works. This is a a pattern that we see in the way God works then and in the New Testament in the manner in which Jesus comes. He works in unexpected ways. We find Jesus born in a manger, coming in almost obscurity, in poverty. We see him uh, coming and then really in a way that no one expects, going to a cross. Instead of riding, riding a white horse into Uh, Jerusalem and and overthrowing the Romans. It works in unexpected ways. The older shall serve the younger. The weakness of God, we learn in the scripture, is actually stronger than men. The wisdom of man is but foolishness to God. In fact, I was talking with this about when we recorded Mark on Friday. He shared these things. He shared this verse in 1 Corinthians 1.27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We understand that sometimes in our mind what is bigger maybe isn't always better. And we We have to be thinking in this mindset that so often our pragmatic approaches to life and what the world would say is the way it should be done maybe isn't the way that God wants it to be done. Maybe isn't the way that God has for things to be. 
And so this hints and foreshadows so many things to come. The Old Testament narrative that, that God is in control, not man. God is, is kind of working this weave. He is uh, kind of knitting together the tapestry of his greatness and bestowing this amazing revelation about who he is, how he works, and what he values. He doesn't always value the strongest, the quickest, the fastest, the smartest. And many of you can say amen to that, right? For that's why you are all here today, because right? <laughs> if he did that, we would just have a competition that who is better, who can memorize more scripture, who's the smartest, who's, who's the, yeah, all of these things. And yet God values so often what I think we as human beings do not value. He values a, a humble, a gentle, and lowliness of heart. In fact, it's how he communicates his own heart, that he is gentle and lowly of heart. He's kind. We find that Moses and in the New Testament is one reflected to be one who is meek, that he is not weak, but it is that his strength does not need to be forefront and present, but rather that he, is, he is a, has a quiet strength about him. And so Luke 14, 11 highlights this as the very thing that Jesus was. <laughs> He was one who ultimately humbled himself more than anyone else could for he took on the station of, in the world and took on humanity uh, and he uh, lowered himself. In Luke 14, 11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the person who humbles himself will be exalted. The younger will be served by the older. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see this reflected all over the scripture and I can't give you illustration after illustration but the one that came to mind is probably the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached was based on if not one of the major core emphasis of what he was trying to say wasn't just that you were born into this nation or you had this kind of thing given to you or you were this or you were that or your last name was this or your last name wasn't. He said in the Sermon of the Mount Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are those who, who mourn, for they will be comforted. This makes no sense. Blessed are the meek, for they're the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they're the ones who will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who make peace, the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is those, blessed are you, people, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for rejoice, as Mark said today, the joy of our Lord is our strength. For rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets before you, and so they will do to me, he says. And so this is a lesson we learn from the passages in the Old Testament throughout Scripture to, to follow a Jesus that often doesn't look like the enigmatic characters or that we see all that man elevates above others. And then we ultimately learn that God shows no partiality. It's not about your birth order, your birth status, or the things that we've already described, but rather that we all are in need of Adonai, our Lord, our Yahweh, our Savior, our God. Romans 2.11, God shows no favoritism or partiality. All 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Evil will be judged, and all who turn to the goodness of God and believe in him will be saved. And that is a major theme through the New Testament, that Jew, Gentile, Greek, right? Slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, all can come to the Lord and be saved. God shows no favoritism or partiality. He is just. Yet, he will choose to work out his grand redemption plan in his way. And though the people and through his people that he wants in his choosing, God's promise to reunite mankind and we cling to his promises. And so we, we trust that God is working this plan and that we are included in this plan is one of the most marvelous things in the world. It's even hard to describe and understand. But we find this repeated pattern through scripture. God shows no partiality and yet we find that God is faithful. His grace is enough. That man is, is evil and God is good and his grace and his promises are faithful. When we cling to him, we hold on to him. Even in fact in Genesis we find that the very ending of Genesis and all of Joseph's life is meant to describe that very thing. That what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. That in Joseph's life, he has endured all kinds of unjust things. He is the ultimate victim. (laughs) And yet chooses not to play the victim card, but to play the victory of Jesus card. To trust that God is in control, and what others mean for evil against me, God will work for good. We see this worked out in Romans 8. And it is just a, a pattern that we look throughout the scripture. How the cross was meant for evil. The cross, a a, a thing meant to crucify sinners. (laughs) Yet God meant it for good. God redeeming broken people back to himself. This is how he works his tove back into creation, his goodness. And so we come to Genesis 25 and as I'm gonna hop from story to story today, we look first at this really very dysfunctional family. (laughs) He is a very dysfunctional family and it's just beginning the family of dysfunction as we know the scripture often shares all the variety of goods and bads in our lives. The family of dysfunction, this heel grabber who Jacob then is really worked out, the scripture describes him as this heel grabber, you could almost say a power grab. That's a phrase we use today, right? A power grabber. He's constantly trying to choose and grasp power for himself to make his own luck through deception and supplanting and tricking. He does this throughout the scripture in this time. Esau, the ruddy red one, um, the burly man, the brawny man, you would, right? He's on that. And, And then we see this oracle in verse 23, the older shall serve the younger God is not gonna show favoritism and partiality, but he will choose whom he will choose. And, and we find in this amazing, powerful thing that the parents are, are showing favoritism and partiality. They're the ones separating, and God is trying to bring a family and to bless, to bless the world. And then Esau is very apathetic and disregards his birthright, what's been given to him. He, he just is very disregarding. He doesn't care. He's tired and hungry, and he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of porridge, right? And then Jacob uh, shows mistrust for God and his timing and his promise, not trusting the oracle of God that he would be blessed, but rather determines to hedge his bets and works out every kind of deception in order to get what he wants. And in turn, God uses that to do what he desires, that what Jacob meant for evil, God's gonna work it out for good despite what Jacob might think. 
And then we see this story where we see in Genesis 27, where you see this work out in this amazing picture of, of Jacob kind of deceiving his parents. I would say his deceiving Isaac, Rebekah and Jacob versus Isaac and Esau. And he works out this plan and they kill a goat and they make a, a meal for um, their father and, and, and Isaac is gonna bless Esau even despite what the oracle had said. Isaac is disobeying God in the same way. Every single one of them is meant to blame. But, but they, he puts on, a, 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 an animal is killed, blood is spilled, and there's a covering of skin on Jacob's arms. His, he's not as hairy as his brother, so he puts goat's hair on his arms in order to deceive his father. And it's just a fascinating parallel, at least for me. That in the manner in which that our sins were, uh, be, sin entered the world in Genesis 3, God kills an animal and sheds uh, its skin to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And now we see Jacob doing the exact opposite, killing an animal and covering himself in order to deceive. It's a turn over, it's a flip and and we see this amazing thing go through as, as Jacob eventually does deceive his father, receives the blessing and the birthright. Yet despite the mess, God will work good from this. God does not punish him immediately, but God is patient and long-suffering, choosing to let Jacob struggle and wrestle his way where he may, making a name for himself without allowing God to do it for him. And he will connive and trick his way to the top, but not for long, for God will change his name soon. And he will change his name forever. And he begins this change through a dream that Jacob has. Turn with me to Genesis 28. We see the story that I actually got to preach on, I think it was last Christmas, in Jacob's Ladder. Genesis 28. It's known as Jacob's Ladder. It's probably more akin to a stairway than we think of a ladder. Uh, but this word ladder, stairway, in which he has a dream. And, and there is this ladder stairway that comes as heaven opens up and we see in Genesis 28, verses 12, it says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up from the earth, and its top reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Even that word could be talked about. He stood above it, and then he came down, it says. And it said, I am the Lord God of whom? Abraham, your father, and of your God of Isaac, and the land of which you lie on right now, I'm gonna give you, to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. They'll spread across west, east, north, and south. And in you, your offspring and the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, he says in verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back into the land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep. Surely uh, the Lord is in this place, he said, and I did not know it. So this vision, this dream that he beholds is this incredible story in this location of Bethel where he is going to reconcile and, and name this idea of, of, of the house of God, the place in which God has opened up the heaven and described to him this stairway to heaven, a reversal of what they tried to do in Babel. The Tower of Babel. They tried to make a name for themselves by building a tower to heaven where they could be gods themselves. God came down to that and scattered the people and babbled their language. And so here in Bethel, we have the house of God. We have this God coming down and making his uh, relationship with Jacob and his family. And it's an amazing scenario. 
that, that in this storyline we connect it all the way to John chapter one in the person of Jesus. That Jesus takes this story of this stairway that's opened, that we all long to get to heaven. How is it that we may get there? We can build a tower to ourselves, but we found that doesn't work. God says, I'm gonna come down on this stairway and I am gonna be the conduit whereby I will reconcile the relationship between humanity who has sinned and a holy God. I will be the stairway between the two. And Jacob, I'm gonna use you and your family to accomplish this amazing task. And Jesus fulfills this in John chapter one. John chapter one, you can look there if you want. In John 1, 50, it says, because I've said this to you, this is Jesus to Nathaniel, as he calls Nathanael, because I have said this to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you, Nathanael, and he's speaking to the disciples, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Which is the name Jesus used to refer to himself, the Son of Man, this designation of divine authority, the Son of Man designating this firstborn who has all authority to lay down his life and authority to lift it up. This is the Son of Man upon which the angels of heaven will ascend and descend, the which heaven will open up and earth will be united. Heaven and earth will be united again. It is happening on whom? It is on Jesus. Jesus is the bridge as we looked at last week and as we find Jesus is the stairway by which all of us come into a relationship with God. It is not this corporate ladder that we ascend on our own strength for we are not saved by works but by grace and by the power of Jesus Christ and his blood alone, faith in him. For we have all fallen short of the glory of God. God shows no partiality. We have all fallen short but when God, uh, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive and by Christ and by his grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This is the relationship of God taking us up to be with him. And then God is going to further unite this amazing story as we see this dream that he has. He's gonna further uh, uh, confirm his promises to Jacob because Jacob uh, doesn't get things the first time or the second time or the third time. Is that like you and me? We need it over and over to the point where God is gonna bring it face to face to Jacob here. Look at Genesis 32. This is the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Maybe you're familiar with this story. I'm gonna be honest, it's probably one of the more challenging stories I've studied in a long time. One of the passages where I read it and reread it, I read commentator after commentator and I still am grasping to understand the full meaning of this. And then I have to come to Sunday and act like I know what I'm talking about, right? Well, it, it, you're joining me with this, this journey. As we try to understand one of the more complicated and I will say one of the most bizarre, if you would, stories in all of scripture. Uh, Jacob wrestling with this man who seems to be in the likeness of the pre-incarnate Christ. What is going on here? <laughs> so you look at Genesis 32, there's this WWE match that takes place, okay? This pro wrestler comes in and, and challenges Jacob to a duel, a wrestling fight, all right? Now, he didn't say it like that. It says it in a much more beautiful way. But look at uh, Genesis 32. And he took, uh, this is uh, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25 of Genesis 32. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. 
as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day is broken, said the man. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, heel grabber. Right? And he said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God or wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed or endured. Then Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. An extraordinary story, not something maybe you read about every day. This happens through Jacob in a very unique time period in Jacob's life. Jacob is literally running from his uncle Laban, who he's just swindled multiple times over. Okay, the great swindler of Laban has just been swindled by the greater swindler of Jacob. They've gone back and forth and you can read about it in the chapters before. They trick one another and literally uh, uh, Jacob leaves in the middle of the night with all these goods and runs away. And as he comes out of the, I think one commentator said, as he comes out of the fire or out of the frying pan into the fire, he leaves Uncle Laban and he sees in front of him who he has to encounter, his brother Esau who's sworn to kill him when he next time he sees him. Great. Jacob really makes friends really well, doesn't he? Okay. And he's about to see Esau, who's supposedly mad at him and wants to kill him, but it turns out that's not the case. But Jacob thinks so, and so Jacob schemes again and, and works out all these different ways to be able to uh, provide gift after gift for Esau to flatter him so that he doesn't end up killing him. And so the night before he is going to face Esau face to face, he goes to sleep. And he's alone. I like the little show I love watching on TV, Alone, where these guys have to survive alone in the wilderness for multiple days and grizzly bears and all these things come to their tents and it's very scary. I love it. Uh, it's, uh, I imagine myself being able to do that even though I know I never could uh, survive on my alone in the, uh, by myself in the wilderness. But this sense of he being alone, very important. For all of a sudden, not a grizzly bear comes into his tent, but a man challenges him to a wrestling match. And in this vision-like state or real thing, it's hard to encounter here, but what we see is Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, that's a long time. Jacob is known for being very stubborn, for being very um, uh, conniving, very uh, powerful, and, and, and yet he doesn't give up. Man comes to him suddenly, he struggles throughout the night, and then finally, it almost as if uh, when it's time, when the lesson has been taught, God, this man, touches his hip and immediately his hip is without, it dislocates and, and he can no longer wrestle. But what we find him doing, the Hebrew says, he actually clutches and holds fast to the man and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I can no longer wrestle. All I can do is cling to you, hold on to you and not let you go. Kind of like when I'm walking around after the kids and the kid's just holding onto my leg, you know, and you're just walking around with a child grasping your leg, wanting to play, you know. It's this picture of that. Literally this heel-grabbing kind of thing. He's grabbing and he's holding on to this God, really, the man. And then eventually the man says he is going to change his name and then he blesses him. It's an extraordinary story. Several different commentators spoke into this idea of teaching of what this means and Jacob has been operating, they said, on his own for too long. He's been conniving and working his own ways to do things without trusting in God. Even though God has told him, I'm going to preserve you, I will never leave you and forsake you. I'm going to protect you. 
I don't think Jacob really gets it. He doesn't believe him, and so he works his own magic, if you would. He works his own luck, if you would. So God eventually says, well, I'll play you at your game. <laughs> you like wrestling constantly? You like struggling all the time? Almost like a little toddler, right? He's just throwing a fit constantly. It's like, I'm gonna play you at your own game, and I'll throw a fit too, you know? Here, you wanna wrestle and struggle? I'm gonna wrestle you and struggle with you, and then I'll show you who's in charge. I'll play your own game. I'll challenge you to a wrestling match and Jacob meets his match. The man, this God, causes him to suffer and struggle, ends up actually wounding him to the point where he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. It's not a fatal thing, but it's something in which he remains changed. The man causes Jacob to surrender to his own schemes, from his own schemes, and to submit to the plans of God. And it is in that moment God chooses to bless him and confirm his blessing. And one commentator was saying and ultimately that this is where we see an archetype of the whole Bible and really the whole story of Israel right in this little story of this wrestling match. A foreshadowing of the struggling and the wrestling that the nation of Israel will go through throughout the entire Old Testament. What do we read about in literally every book? A major prophet, minor prophet, kings, chronicles, all of what we read about is the nation of Israel contending with God, struggling to keep his law and yet God never letting go. And the nation of Israel constantly having to come back and finally cling to God and it is in that moment that we find blessing. We also see a storyline of pointing to Christ of how eventually this struggle, this wounding, this bruising, this uh, hip socket limp, this cross. The Jewish Messiah comes and he's given up. Great humbling of humanity and through the grave wound there comes great blessing. From the cross of Jesus Christ comes blessing for the world and forever the world will be changed. And so it is through Israel that Jacob's name changes to Israel, that the whole Jacob's 12 sons and then into the New Testament and then to us that through our suffering, through our wounding that we find blessing. It is by our wrestling and our endurance in this journey of faith, not necessarily by our immediate escape from it, but rather wrestling with God, we realize God's plan for our lives by our contending with God and believing and clinging and holding fast to his promises that we find blessing, the blessing of his grace extended to his people through our faith in Jesus Christ. We learn much from Jacob wrestling with God. One commentator, Edmund Clowney says, the strange defeat of the Lord at Peniel shows the sure bond of the covenant promise. God is faithful when we are not. Jacob, weak and erring though he may be, may claim the blessing that God has promised. Christ the Lord would have us cleave and cling to him utterly. To speak of accepting him is too far and too weak of an expression. Like Jacob, the believer in the New Testament says, I will not let you go. And then God changes his name from one, this heel grabber deceiver to an Israel, which means strives with God, wrestles with God, contends with God. There's a variety of interpretations. But this wrestler with God, now Israel will be this archetype motif throughout the entire Old Testament of a people wrestling with God, wrestling with the law that he has done, and yet will be the people that come face to face with God. Peniel means that. And so in this direct part we see that God blesses Jacob he has 12 sons and one of his sons 
is the man Joseph. We don't have time to get into this for in fact, Joseph has more real estate in Genesis dedicated to Joseph's life than any other of the patriarchs. Fascinating, more than Abraham, more than Isaac, more than Jacob himself. Joseph has more material dedicated to him and you would be hard pressed to find something in Joseph's life in which he failed or he neglected God. He is an incredible, uh, an incredible figure to study. In fact, he's probably my favorite uh, character in the entire Bible. I was able to do a, a sermon series on this a few years ago. You can find it on the website, Living the Dream, Joseph. Joseph's Living the Dream. What this is, where we f- see the these, this storyline of 12 sons, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel's 12 sons, and yet, does God choose the oldest, Reuben? No, he doesn't. He chooses actually Judah from the tribe of Judah, and he uses Joseph as the one to rescue and preserve the family line. The one who, who's thrown into the pit eventually finds himself in the penthouse. Okay, I did the alliteration there. Finds himself in the pit to, to the palace. Whatever you might have there, he, he eventually becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And God uses him to preserve not only the family of Jacob, Israel, but also of the nations surrounding to bless the people of God. And Joseph is sold for money. He's offered up for dead. And it is through his supposed death and suffering and his sacrifice that he is eventually, you could say, resurrected to victory and power and offers peace and reconciliation and, and salvation and makes peace with his estranged ones the ones who have wronged him, the ones that there is enmity between. And it is in Joseph's life that we see uh, character after caricature of God. And then I don't have time to look at Joseph's life, but I want to look at the end of Genesis and moving right into Moses as we close. The death of Joseph is fascinating. One writer said that Genesis begins with God's creation of light and life and ends with the embalming of a mummy. Right? I mean, who, who doesn't like that story? Where we have in the very last words of Genesis, the embalming of a mummy. How cool is that? Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 through 26. It, Joseph says this, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Notice Joseph has a sense of the promises of God that will not let hold of. We have been promised to not stay in Egypt, but to the land. So what does he say? Bring you up out of the land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 25, then Joseph made his sons of Israel swear to him, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. And then Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, how cool is that? And he was put in a coffin in Egypt, right? We see this actually fulfillment of the prophecy that Joseph says to this point, hearkening to the promises of God to rescue his people of Egypt, worked out in the book of Exodus and fulfilled in the book of Joshua. In fact, in Joshua 24, 32, it says, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought. And it became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. All the way to the book of Joshua, we see the people of Israel not forgetting the promises of God, taking the bones and the coffin and the mummy of Joseph and bringing it all the way up into the promised land. The, this Genesis is like an ending here with this embalming of Joseph, but it is pointing us forward, pointing us forward that God continues his promise says, look forward, God's not gonna leave you in Egypt. He will rescue you. Trust him. 
This is what we're supposed to be said. So we turn the page and we see in Exodus chapter one. In Exodus chapter one, it mentions this person of Joseph, but it says that there arose a king, a pharaoh in Egypt, this is Exodus 1.8, that knew not Joseph. There was one who had forgotten all the things that Joseph and the people of Israel had done for Egypt, and as Egypt has now been almost, in their mind, overrun by this family that's turned now into a nation hundreds of years later, We see that the nation of Israel is literally a nation, a people, numerous, and they are now enslaved. They find themselves enslaved, and they're in need of a rescue, of a savior, somebody to help us. They groan out to God, and it says in in Exodus 2.23 that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry for rescue came. But it came not from anywhere. It said the cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And we see that he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And in chapter three, we see this amazing encounter with Moses and the burning bush. Moses has been preserved himself. He tried to kill off all the Hebrew male children and he's preserved in the reeds, raised as an Egyptian prince and yet kills an Egyptian and flees to Midian. He flees to Midian where he starts to live. He marries and he becomes what? Well, a shepherd. <laughs> so all of great leaders in the scripture are shepherds. And we find that this, uh, in Exodus 3, we see this encounter with this bush that is not consumed. A, a bush that burns and yet doesn't burn up. And it says in Exodus 3 that he comes into this place and, and he says, here I am, another instance of Hineni in verse 4 where he says, here I am to God as God calls him out of the bush. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses hid his face, he was afraid. And then it says in verse 13 and 15 as he talks to him that I'm gonna deliver you out of this place, I'm gonna rescue you, I'm gonna use you to be my mouthpiece. There's an incredible statement where, where Moses says, well, well, when I go to the people of Israel and I tell them that it's time to get out of Egypt, well, they're not gonna listen to me. And plus, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> Who, what is your name? And in Exodus 3 verse 13, and Moses said to God, if I come up to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell him? Notice when Jacob said this, Jacob asked the man he wrestled, what's your name? And he didn't give it to him. Instead he changed his name and said, your name's Israel. Here God reveals his personal name to Moses and to the people of God. Verse 14, what is your name? Verse 14, God said to him, to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. I will bring you up out of your affliction into the land that I have promised you. I will do this. I am who I am, the God who has no beginning and has no end. The God who does not say, I am of the order of this. I am the created uh, person of this. No, I am. I exist. I am all powerful, self-sufficient, the holy, pure one, distinct from all. I am. It is powerful. It is personal. And you watch as he tells in Exodus 3, you watch as I am is about to drop the hammer on the Egyptians, right? (laughs) That's what we're gonna read about next week. I will redeem this people and I will judge. 
This word I am almost gives us chills as we consider it to the point where in the Old Testament the I am Yahweh is not used in the Old Testament very often for the people of God would never utter the word in order that they felt they might take God's name in vain. It was a holy name. And this God This I am who promises to redeem the people out of Egypt, who speaks through a burning bush to Moses, who cares personally to reveal himself to him, is the same God that speaks to us today. Is that not incredible? As we consider for a moment as we close to just consider the greatness of God, the power of God. He is, as we're gonna sing in a moment, not a God created. He has no beginning. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob has sent me to you through Moses and Israel. He is our hope, our salvation for rescue. We are a people in Egypt, helpless, enslaved. We cling to God and his promises that he has promised never to leave us and forsake us. He has promised to rescue us. He has promised us a resurrection and we cling to him. And yet we stand before him, we remove our shoes for we are before a holy God, but because of the blood of Jesus, we enter into the throne room of power through the confidence that we have in what Jesus has done to receive help in time of need. This God, who is great and mighty, has come down and revealed his name to you. And he knows your name. 